All right, let's pray together. Father, we are glad to be here and to learn about the truth of your word, particularly the doctrine of election and how it is, in fact, unconditional um, to understand what that means, uh, where the scripture teaches this doctrine from the election of Israel you know, to Christ, to those who are in Christ, um, a theme that has been there since the very beginning. And so we pray for humility and wisdom as we consider these things this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, need some lubrication here. Last time we concluded discussing effectual regeneration calling, particularly um, responding to the doctrine of prevenient grace and then a few other minor objections, and concluded that God's regenerating unbeliever's heart is uh, how someone who is dead in sin can find themselves somehow having a desire for godliness and a desire to repent and believe uh, in the first place. Uh, and so we moved on from that to talk about God's decree that we find in chapter 3 of the Confession. And we went through quite a few texts um, showing the meticulous predetermination of God. And by meticulous predetermination, we said that God determines everything beforehand, number one, and that he does so meticulously, that is to say, down, I love the Captain America shirt, so strong, so strong, fitting for Crystal Johnson, true hero. Um, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Why are we here again? What are we doing? Somewhere in the middle. We did, uh, yes, meticulous, yes, meticulous providence, meticulous sovereignty. So that God predetermines everything but he does so down to the micro level. Remember, the lot, even seemingly random things. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every turn is from the Lord. In fact, I'm showing Will uh, the Star Wars movies, and we just got, uh, we, we finished Return of the Jedi because we watched them, you know, five, six, seven. Oh, wait, no, wait. Four, five, six. No, wait, is that it? Four, five, yeah, four, five, six. Return of the Jedi. And then, regrettably, we had to start with uh, the first one with Qui-Gon Jinn and whatever, it's whole disaster. The, uh, the, the, and, uh, but you remember when, some of you remember, when uh, they're betting, when Watto, I think that's the little guy who flies around, right? Watto uh, is, uh, is, is talking with Qui-Gon Jinn about whether uh, he's going to get Anakin or his mom released from uh, slavery. You remember this? He rolls, a, he rolls basically a die that has red on some and blue on the other. And what does Qui-Gon Jinn do? Of course, he rolls it on the ground, and Qui-Gon Jinn uses the force and makes sure that it ends up on, uh, I guess, the blue side, whatever the side is that frees Anakin. That, that's the idea. That's the meticulous sovereignty, that God meticulously determines things the smallest details, and that's contrasted with, you might say, kind of a general understanding of sovereignty, that God doesn't determine all the details. What he does is he kind of determines macro events, and then he plays within the gaps, like a chess player or something like that. He doesn't determine every detail. It's called, I call it fishbowl sovereignty, where God determines that the fish, you know, can't go outside the bowl, but within the bowl, he doesn't determine where the fish swims around at. So that's, that would be kind of in contrast to this. But we saw a picture of meticulous predetermination. The king's heart 
is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The lot is cast into a lap. It has destruction. Does destruction come upon a city if the Lord has not done it? The very hairs on your head are numbered. There's not a single sparrow who falls outside of the providence uh, uh, of God. And so uh, we started with meticulous predetermination, but we actually did not get to a doctrine. Meticulous predest, uh, excuse me, pre- meticulous predetermination um, does not actually get you. It's not the same thing as unconditional election, right? Because you could still have predetermination, but a, with a conditional election. All right. We didn't really talk about anything that got us to unconditional election, although I will say this. There is a general argument for God's sovereignty and salvation and meticulous sovereignty, and the argument is quite very simple. It goes like this. God meticulously predetermines everything. Repenting and believing is part of everything, and therefore God sovereignly determines repentance and belief. Okay, If God is meticulously sovereign and repenting and believing the gospel are things that happen in life in the world, then God is meticulously sovereign over repentance and belief as well. So that's the general, what you might call the general argument um, to election. But we haven't gotten to unconditional election. Because remember, our our Arminian friends believe in election. The ones who know what they're talking about. Maybe not your average pew-sitter. But the academic Arminians, they believe in election. They just believe in conditional election. And it's going to be election, in most cases, based on foresight, foreseen faith. And so your faith is what causes God to elect you. Both believe in election, but why do, we, why do we have reason to believe the Scripture talks of unconditional election to salvation? And that brings us to kind of where we were last time. We looked at John chapter 10, and we read 22 through 29. Uh, and, and we read that remarkable phrase that Jesus says, people are, are not believing in him. And uh, Jesus says to them, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That one right there is a, is a real pebble in the shoe. The reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. Okay? Usually we turn that around. How do you become a sheep of God? What do you believe? But in this particular, and that's not necessarily even false, but in this particular case, it's saying my father has given to me a particular set of sheep. And my sheep know my voice. They listen to me. That's what he says in John 10. And you don't believe, you don't hear my voice because you're not a sheep. Okay? That's what Jesus says. So we got election there. So we went through Acts 13, went to Acts 13, 48. Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 11 is where we're going to camp out today. Let's look at what the scripture says about the unconditional nature um, of election. Okay, turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 and Romans 9, uh, or then, excuse me, Romans 9. We are going to spend the lion's share of our time today in these two passages because they are so foundational for not only the doctrine of election in general, but the doctrine of unconditional election, unconditional election. Paul writes, blessed be the, starting in verse 3 of Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according 
to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That last part is a theme that we're going to come back to when we talk about perseverance of the saints. Okay, If the Spirit is a guarantor of your inheritance, how do you, how, how do you lose your inheritance then if God's playing defense? We're going to come back to that later. But uh, a lot here in this passage. So let's just talk about a few things that stick out. First, uh, verse 4 says that we were chosen in Him, that in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So that in him language calls to mind Paul's consummate, uh, uh, well, his, his, this no, not consummate, the ubiquitous, it's everywhere, uh, this doctrine of union with Christ. We're with Christ, we're in Christ, we're raised up with Christ, seated with Christ. The in Christ, union with Christ language is one of the largest themes in Paul, right alongside justification uh, by faith. So we aren't chosen, and this is important, we aren't chosen in some kind of theologically naked sense. But some people think even when you repent and believe the gospel that Jesus forgives you and then your enduring relationship with God is somehow like apart from Christ. Like Christ is the one who ushers you in the door and you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And you kind of, and then, no, no, no. God always sees us in Christ. That's what the doctrine of union with Christ is. God loves us in Christ, chose us in Christ, predestined us in Christ, sanctifies us in Christ, raises us in Christ. So there isn't a Christ, the doorkeeper, who mercifully allows us to get through and then kind of detached from that we move forward because we've been declared this or that. No, it's the union with Christ is the basis, I would suggest, of everything. So we aren't chosen in some theologically naked sense. Everything about our election is tied to Christ in union with him in his death and resurrection. So this is how we are holy and blameless before him, because we are in Christ. And we know, we, we learn that this happens before the foundation of the world. So this is not an afterthought after the fall. God creates, there's a fall, like, oh no, what am I going to do? I was really hoping Adam was going to push the boundaries of the garden and things would look a lot better here. And what am I going to do? You know what I need to do? I need to elect some folks. I need to choose some people. That's not it. The whole plan was in place beforehand, before the foundation of the world. And we furthermore read that this was an act of love, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as son. That's family language, justification, courtroom language, not guilty, adoption, family language. Adopted. In love or adopted. I'm adopted. Most of you know that by now, hopefully. Okay? 
My parents adopted me in love. That's what sovereign adoption uh, looks like here. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And again, not naked, through Jesus Christ. That's the last phrase here. Through Jesus Christ. We're adopted through Jesus Christ as we are in Jesus Christ. Okay? So our being chosen was an act of love. And the closest thing we get to a why is right here, which is why this is called unconditional election. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Okay? This underscores why the doctrine is called unconditional election and not arbitrary election. Not arbitrary election. That's what some people think. Again, God's not out there playing, God is not pictured as playing cosmic any, many, money mo. And he just ended up with a set of folks. Okay? Predestination was done in love. Just because you and I aren't told what the mystery of God's will is or the counsel of God's will doesn't mean he was up there playing Russian roulette in love. Just not, that's just not the picture. The idea is that God chose those upon He was going to bestow grace and mercy not conditioned on anything in us. Not for no reason whatsoever. That would be arbitrary. We can't, that, the whole point is we can't point to anything in us and say, and that's why God elected me. That's the whole point here. That's the point of unconditional election. Not that there's no reason for it whatsoever, but that there is nothing in me that would be the grounds or cause of being chosen um, chosen uh, by God. What we get is from the motivation of love for the sake of His glory and in accordance with His purposes. How is election? Election from the motivation of love for the sake of His glory and in accordance with His purposes. You know, well, well hold on, wait, wait, what are His purposes? It's like, well, hold on. He just isn't, He's not going to, it's not for us to know. We're going to see this even more in Romans, Romans 9. But it is according to His will, according to His purpose, which He purposed in Christ before the age began. We're not going to spend a ton of time on 7 through 10 in this moment, but we learn that in Christ there is a cosmic reconciliation of all things that comes together with individual reconciliation to God. Both of them go through Christ. Christ is reconciling the world to himself, understood as um, he, is, he is reconciling unbelievers to himself, but he is also he is uniting all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Christ has come to put the world to rights. He's come to make all things new. And so... Uh, verses 7 through 10 have this picture of a cosmic reconciliation, it would seem, that is tied in with individual reconciliation in light of election. And then in verse 11 we read again, in him, in who? See, we have the in Christ language again, right? You cannot get away from this. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained it, having been predestined, and then we get the same kind of reason here. Having predestined, like, oh, okay, here we go. Now we're going to finally get the answer. Predestined what? According to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Oh, where was the reason? That is the reason, though. That's the reason that, that's the reason that God designed, uh, has chosen to reveal to us in, his, in the Scripture. 
the secret things belong to the Lord, right? But the but 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 uh, these things um, are for us and for our children. Deuteronomy uh, twenty nine twenty nine, right? We have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according not to our works, not to something in me, not to foreseen faith, but just according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Again, from the motivation of love, for the sake of His glory, in accordance with His purpose, in accordance with the mystery of His will. That is the idea of unconditional, not to be confused with arbitrary election. Okay? Any questions about that uh, unconditional election as we see it in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 there? Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty serious uh, text that anchors this doctrine. Any questions about that? Okay, well, then uh, turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. Has anyone ever read this chapter? No, I'm kidding. Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to answer an objection before I even get started. Isn't that backwards? Isn't that a backwards thing to do? I'm going to answer an objection before our project even gets started here because I've heard it said... I heard it said. It's making make it sound like I heard it on Facebook or something. Um, uh, it, it is claimed that using Romans 9 as a proof text for election is, uh, is, is, is out of bounds. You can't do it. In fact, one uh, Reformed guy... Uh, who, who I actually uh, went to went to school with uh, years ago um, suggested that we should stop using Romans nine to defend what he called Calvinism. Why is that? Does anyone know why someone would suggest that? By the way, okay, so that would. No, that, 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 so we're going to get to that interpretation of it. That's going to be a corporate election understanding of it. Um, but this guy that I'm talking about is reformed. And he, and he says, no, this is not a proof text. Or he gets his sovereignty of God and salvation from all the other texts that we've looked at. But this one, he's like, this isn't a proof text for that. Anyone know why someone might say that? A reformed person might say that. Joe had a good point. We're going to talk about someone might say that because they think it's talking about corporate election and not individual. The what? I'm sorry. Um, no, no. Well, that could be it for someone. It's not the not the objection that gets pushed. Uh, but that's a very that's a that's a really good guess. Really good answer. Um, the answer that I'm talking about specifically comes from understanding Romans 9 through 11 as a unit, which all scholars agree, Romans 1 through 8, and then Romans 9 through 11 as a kind of parentheses that explains how the nation of Israel fits into um, uh, um, the, the plan of Romans 1 through 8. Everyone agrees 9 through 11 has to be read as a unit. And certainly, and it overlaps closely with what Joe said, although it's not, it's not an Arminian interpretation, certainly Romans 9 through 11 is, uh, and we're about, we're about to see this, this question, 
asked, uh, at least uh, implicitly, if the Jewish Messiah has come, promises are true, why have most of the Jews rejected Jesus? That's the question Paul is asks and attempts to answer, does answer, I should say, in Romans 9 through 11. Okay? And then he goes on in Romans 12 and following in more of application. That's after we get the indicatives of the gospel, how Israel kind of fits into that picture. Then we get the um, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, be, be transformed by the rule, renewal of your mind. We get Romans 12. We get all these imperatives that follow from the gospel. So let me just answer the objection real quick, though. Um, they are absolutely right that Romans 9 through 11 is about how Israel fits into the plan. Absolutely right. No question about it. Where they go wrong is the faulty presupposition in the, it, there's a faulty presupposition in theological method, and it's something like this. In a passage primarily concerned with X, we can't draw conclusions about Y. That's what they're saying. In a passage that's primarily concerned about X, in this case, Israel, and what we're going to think about Israel moving forward, we can't draw conclusions about Y because that's not the point of the passage. It might sound like it has some intuitive weight, but it's actually just not the case. Um, we read Acts 13 uh, last time the, 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 uh, about election unto eternal life. It recounts Paul and Barnabas' teaching in Antioch in Sidia. It's not a passage about election. And yet, that is exactly what we read in Acts 13. Y'all remember Acts 13, 48? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13 is not a chapter about election or being appointed to salvation. And yet, nevertheless, it very clearly seems to indicate that in the passage. 1 Timothy 2 is a passage about praying for all those who are in authority, for leaders, for the magistrates, so that we can get live peaceful and dignified lives. And yet, uh, and, and it talks about the proper disposition of men and women and authority structure uh, within, the, within the church. And yet, right in the middle, we find a critical proof text for Christian exclusivism, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, in a chapter that is about praying for those who are in authority, and then right below it, authority regard, regarding men and women, particularly in worship and in the local church, we get a verse tucked in there about there being one mediator between God and man. Is it true that that's not the primary point of that passage? Yes, it is. Is it true that that gives us a really helpful uh, insight into the exclusivity of what Christ has done? Yes, absolutely it does. Similarly, Hebrews 9 is a passage, basically like the rest of the book of Hebrews, about how Christ is a greater high priest and the redemption accomplished by his blood um, is superior to any of the sacrifices that came before it. And yet in 927, we get one of the most straightforward refutations of, in, of re, the doctrine of reincarnation. Uh, that is to say, you die and you come back as something else, right? This kind of cycle. Uh, in, in Scripture, that uh, it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. That's not the primary point of the passage. But the author makes it along the way to making the main point of the passage about the redemption 
uh, of Christ's blood and how effective it is. So over and over in Scripture, you see a passage that is primarily arguing X, but it makes certain points along the way in service of arguing that larger point, and in, the, in a narratival account, just as a commentary on what's happened, that are meaningful for our doctrine, that are meaningful for specific doctrines. And so it simply just will not do to say, because Romans 9 through 11 is about the future, uh, about Israel and its enduring future, that it's illegitimate to use it as a proof text. For the same reason, it would be illegitimate to say that you couldn't point to some of those other texts that happen to be embedded within larger contexts that are about something different. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm sorry? So talk a little bit more about more. Refute what exactly? Talk about Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Are you saying is, does verse twenty four demonstrate that Romans nine through eleven isn't primarily about Israel? Oh yeah. Oh, it certainly. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. But the 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 uh, it certainly includes. Yeah. So the argument. Yeah. To clarify for the folks, the good folks at home watching on camera, there's always an odd thing. But I hope you're hope you're having a good morning. Um, the the view isn't that that Romans nine through eleven is only about Israel. But it's about Israel moving forward in light of the Gentiles having accepted the gospel um, and how that, how, what that relationship looks like. Yeah. And so it's saying because it's about the Gentiles and Israel and, the few, and, and this redemptive historical thing that's going on here, it's not, a, it's not a passage about individual election. And so we're saying, well, actually, that's, that's, it is true that the primary brunt of the passage is not about individuals elected unto salvation. And yet you see this sprinkled at, uh, throughout uh, Romans 9 through 11. And so certainly that is fair game, just like these other texts are. Does that help answer the question? Okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's look at the passage. All right. I'm going to read it for us. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'm just going to go ahead and read the first 27 verses. I know that's a lot, but that's, that's okay. I want you to get the fuller context because one of the things that some reform people are really bad at doing is cherry picking their little proof texts. You got to have the context to make this work well. Okay, after Romans one through eight, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So why is Israel? What's what's on? What's going on with the Jews then? What happened? He came as the Jewish Messiah. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, Paul says, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how Paul starts it. I'm, I'm sad over this. I wish I could be cut off for their sake. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ. This is the Jewish Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So that's how Paul starts Romans 9. Very, very important. He starts saying, look, I'm, my heart is torn up for the Jewish people, for Israel, 
Because they're the ones who were given the promises. They're the ones the law was revealed to. They're the ones that that the Messiah came from. And look at them. And then I would say that Roman, my, in my personal opinion, people, some people would differ with me on this. I think that the most important verse for understanding Romans 9 through 11 is Romans 9, 6. It, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? What is Paul's answer? What is Paul's answer to why it is that despite appearances, the word of God has not in fact failed? The promises have not failed. Because... For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not all all Israel is Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are the children of Abraham... Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then he gives an example of that. That's why he quotes the the passage there from Genesis. Through Isaac shall your offspring rename. As opposed to whom? No, who is Isaac's half-brother? Ishmael. Yeah. So Abraham tries to kind of get it done himself, advance the promise a little bit prematurely, right? Hagar, we're going to have a... Nope. But notice that Ishmael has just as much claim to Abrahamic lineage as Isaac. Am I right? That's his point. He's like, wait a second. It's never been everyone descended from Abraham. It's never been. The promise was never went through everyone descended from Abraham. Through Isaac. From the very beginning, there was a distinction here. Well, let's read on. This means, what does Paul conclude? He said, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Whoa, that's a big deal right there. That's a big deal. Just because you are descended from Abraham does not mean that you are a child of God. To a Jew hearing that, that would be a pretty serious uh, Departure from what they would have thought. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. And then we get a little bit more. We hear a little bit more. He says, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This is, that's, the, that's the child of promise. Where Abraham and Sarah were so old, they were as good as dead. And sometimes, right? That's kind of how the scripture describes it. And, 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 the, and the, the, the child, uh, miraculously, it would seem, uh, conceived in that kind of old age is Isaac. Right? And that's exactly what happens. That's the promise. It's the line of promise. The child that results from the promise. And then he's going to give another example. He said, all right, I've given one example of where descending from Abraham does not mean that you are a child of God, but it's the child of the promise. Then he goes another, he goes another step. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, Rebekah, wife of Isaac, right? Um, uh, uh, um, not only so, but Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. 
So now she goes forward a generation. They both have the same father. This is why the example works. And the father is in the line of promise. Remember? Isaac's in the line of promise. But even within the line of promise, there's going to be a distinction. Even within the line of promise, physical descent, there's a distinction. Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, so nothing in them was the cause of what we were about to read. This is the unconditional part. Before they were born, so they hadn't done anything bad, and nothing good or bad, period, that they might have done. And then we get a very Ephesians 1 sounding reason. In the order that God's purpose of election might continue. Okay? Not because of works. Okay? Not because of effort. Not because of performance. Not because of virtue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Paul interrupts himself here to make a point. He interrupts himself. Right? He interrupts himself, and your Bible probably has a hyphen halfway through verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And then it's like, well, well, goodness, what's, what, 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 what kind of judgment could you make then? Well, you could make it uh, in accordance with God's purpose and election because of him who calls. She was told, that is to say, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A quote from Malachi chapter 1. When the people of God are saying, well, there's kind of this dialogue back and forth in one sense. How have you loved us? How have I loved us? And he tells, and God says exactly. He says exactly that. In fact, let me just read it for you real quick so you don't take my word for it. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, Edom, the descendants of Esau, Okay, Edom's the descendants of Esau. So that's, that's where you get this kind of corporate element that shows up here. If Esau, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. Okay, why is that? Because Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And yet, Paul is clearly talking about, uh, uh, the, with the being born language, and having one father language, and having one mother language, uh, he is talking about these two men, distinguishing them in the line that, that, um, that descends from Abraham. And Rebekah is told, the older, that is Esau, will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Paul takes this passage from Malachi chapter 1 and applies it. It's like an inspired commentary on this phenomenon. Okay, he uses it as, as kind of an inspired commentary on this particular phenomenon. Um, and so, verse 14 helps us know that our intuitions are correct here. Because we've reached a bit of a jarring conclusion. 
And if you read verse 14, um, and it, and it, and it kind of doesn't make sense, the question that's being asked is because you haven't read the passage correctly. Because you know what he says? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Why would, why would anyone, who reading this would think there's any injustice? Well, someone reading it saying that before they were good or born, God made a, determine, made a decision about what he was going to do. And who was going to serve the younger? And remember, all of this as part of an argument for what? Why not all Israel is Israel. Right? This is the examples. He's giving examples here. Because there are individuals, key, within it, who were not part of the promise from the very beginning. Individuals within it. So he uses the individuals to make a larger point about why not all Israel is Israel. Okay. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then he gives his strongest negation. By no means. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will. Nations don't have wills. It's not what he's talking about. Nations aren't human. He's talking about people. He's talking about the individuals that we've been discussing so far. So it depends not on human will or exertion working towards righteousness, but what does it depend on then? It depends on God who has mercy. And he has mercy on whomever he wills. So for this, for this reason, okay, the scripture says to Pharaoh, so now he goes forward in the narrative and he gives an example. He gives an example of God having mercy and compassion on whom he chooses. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I've raised Pharaoh up to judge him so that the whole earth will know about my greatness. How the greatest power in the region was conquered by a god, and a bunch of slaves ran out and plundered their gold. And went through the waters. I'm going to use Pharaoh to make my name famous. Remember the heart is in the, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he returns it whatever way he wills. That is exactly what he does here. But again, our, 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 we're, if we're listening the right way, the 19 makes sense. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's like, wait a second. If God has sovereignly determined these things... And it's not based on anything good or bad that people will have done or might have done or in the future are going to do. And, and God's, no one can resist God's will. How can God find fault with them? How can people be responsible, you might say, if that's the case? All right? You have to give a reading up to this point in the text that makes sense of these questions. And then what is the answer? We finally get the philosophical backstory here, right? We finally get the answer that we've looking, been looking for to harmonize the total sovereignty of God and the responsibility. Here's the mechanics of it. No, we don't. We don't get that at all. We don't get that at all. What we get is a, who do you think you are? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So notice, there's. remember we talked about the creator-creature chasm? We're going to return to this again. This is, it's not just that there's a, 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 a pot, the clay, right? And then the potter is like a souped-up version of clay. It's a category, he's a categorically different thing. The, 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 the pot, the clay, um, it, it's incoherent. I mean, it's supposed to be a little bit almost humorous to us, I think. Like if you can imagine a clay pot saying, why have you made me like this? Why do I have to be the, uh, you know, the, uh, the wash basin or whatever? Why can't I be this? The idea is supposed to be absurd. It, it is something that by its very definition um, is going to be molded by the potter who is something some something that is categorically different. He's not just a bigger version of a clay something. He is something totally other. And therefore, the question doesn't even make sense. It would make sense if um, God was just another version of us to ask this question. Oh, that would make a lot of sense. But he says, no, there, there is a creator and a creature chasm here. The questions don't even apply in the same way. What if God, verse 22... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of his mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Two, two different sets of folks. One prepared for wrath, prepared for destruction, verse 22, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of his mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Paul says, how about this? I mean, have you considered this person asking the question? What if God is doing this so that um, he can make, so that he can show his glory through his justice and his judgment to the object of his mercy? That's what he says. That's what he says. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So now he's saying, ah, up until this point, we've talked about how not everyone descended from Abraham is a child of promise. But now I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know, actually, it's, it's even more than that. Gentiles are... Part of the problem. Part of the problem. Excuse me. Uh, part of the promises. Part of the promises. Okay. Let me see. Forward. Oh, I got one. Do what? All right. Hold on one second here. Let me. Let me just see. I, I want to make. Uh, I got one minute to make this point. Let me see if I can do it. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know why. By the way, I, I shouldn't have. So I'll just make my use my last minute to make this point. Uh, verse eighteen. I skipped over. Um, I, I spoke it, I, uh, summarized it, but I didn't say it. So then his conclusion after the Pharaoh example is, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, And that then motivates the question, who will find fault? If God's the one hardening people, how, is, how on earth can they be held responsible? How can they be, it's your fault. No, God did it. That's the tension that Paul himself answers. And you'll see in verse 27, as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, how much of Israel will be saved? This is Old Testament here. Only a remnant of them will be saved. So we need to, we need to pause today. But what we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter, in Romans chapter 9 especially here, and I'll just stick with Romans chapter 9, is that God has purposed in, uh, 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 the election of individuals throughout redemptive history, and that has been a part that has been a, a, a part of the plan from the very beginning. It was never just everyone descended from a particular man, and even within the line of promise, it was never just everyone, and never in ancient Israel. What Paul is going to say was it everyone. Even the promises announced to Israel, announced to Israel as rebel, if you remember this from our uh, Minor Prophet series, Israel is rebel versus Israel is remnant. The promises are announced to Israel as rebel, to those who will repent and turn to God. Those who experience the promises are the remnant, the smaller portion within that. And so what, what is Paul's answer to why it looks like, why God's promises have not failed despite the Jews, having by and large rejected the Messiah, his answer is, you've misunderstood the nature of the promise. You've misunderstood its nature, or more precisely, perhaps, you've misunderstood the, the precise objects of the promise. And because you have misunderstood to whom the promises referred impro improperly, without, uh, and, and of course we have the benefit of the, the whole of Scripture here, um, because you have discerned those things improperly, it may seem like God's promises have failed or God's word has failed, but in fact it's not. Here are these examples to help vindicate me, Paul's argument. Here's my examples to help you see that it was never what you thought it was in that particular narrow way. The example with Abraham, the example with Isaac. God works with individuals. He hardens people. And even Isaiah himself, before we get to this passage, said, only a remnant is going to be saved. And so, not all Israel is Israel. What I would say is if you have to understand this as individual election, or the fact that all Israel is Israel uh, is not Israel, it doesn't make sense. If you don't understand that individuals are elected within this corporate body, then, the whole, then it doesn't even make sense to say not all Israel is Israel. So far from thinking that this is, is, this is disqualified because it's about the future of Israel, I think you, uh, and therefore it's, uh, you, it's disqualified as a passage supporting election. I think you absolutely have to have that, or he doesn't even answer his own question. Okay, we will uh, pick up with this uh, next time, Lord willing, and we will uh, then move on to uh, the perseverance of the saints. God, we're thankful for this doctrine that causes us to be humble. No one can understand a doctrine like election and somehow be proud, but we are so grateful for your mercy. We pray that you would help us submit our minds to these things, even when from our creaturely perspectives, we are the clay saying, well, gosh, if I'm honest, it just seems, seems unfair. But God, um, we don't deserve mercy. We deserve wrath. So we're thankful to have been foreloved by a great God. Be with us in our next hour of worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.